Hello, I'm Haya Camps and I'm stepping in while Daryl is away on his honeymoon. With a bit of luck, he's having too much fun to be listening to this podcast and you'll have to make do with me for the next couple of weeks. I'm psyched to have you tuning in to the TechCrunch podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about this week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. First, let's do a quick rundown of the highlights and must-reads on the site this week. We've all forgotten to add a password to an important folder, but this week's boo-boo by the Department of Justice was a pretty big one. On Monday, the US Department of Justice secured an exposed server that had been spilling sensitive US military emails for more than two weeks. Whoops. The server was hosted on Microsoft Azure Government Cloud, which has servers that are hosted in a different physical location than commercial customers. In theory, that makes things more secure. But someone screwed up, misconfiguring a part of the internal mailbox system without a password, leaving about three terabytes of military emails out in the open. That meant anyone could access the sensitive mailbox data armed with an IP address and a password. No actual hacking required. The email server was packed with extremely sensitive information going back years, including personnel information and a significant amount of background information on security clearance holders. Zach Whittaker has the story with the headline, Sensitive US Military Emails Spill Online, on TechCrunch.com. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or the NHTSA, is requesting more information from Tesla after one of its vehicles crashed into a fire truck in California. Although the agency didn't confirm exactly what it is they're looking for, it is likely that they want to know if Tesla's advanced driver system, known as Autopilot or full self-driving Beta, were engaged at the time of the crash. There are now dozens of these special crash investigations involving Teslas. The agency found that in the majority of cases, full self-driving was involved. It is worth noting that this fatal crash comes only a few days after Tesla recalled more than 360,000 vehicles for a mandatory update of the full self-driving software. Get the full story from Rebecca Balan on your favorite news site, as long as your favorite news site is TechCrunch. Two of Instagram's co-founders have launched their most recent app, Artifact, which is a personalized newsreader. The app had previously only been available to users by special invitation. The founders say that this delay in opening to the public wasn't just to build hype, but because the underlying technology requires a certain amount of data to feed the algos, and a number of people using it to offer the best experience. The newsreader is now available to the public, and the founders are crossing their phalanges in the hope that their personalized news is enough to beat off the stiff competition in the space, including from Apple News, Google News, and Facebook's various recommendation engines. Get a news on the news from Sarah Perez over on TechCrunch.com. Okay, are you ready to dive in deep with the feature stories this week? If not, well, tough luck. Here we go. First up, Taylor Hatmaker is here to walk us through the Supreme Court cases that could change the internet as we know it. Hello, Taylor. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. You wrote a wicked article this week about Supreme Court arguments shaking up the future of the internet. And I'd love to learn a little bit more. Yes, we actually had an unusual situation this week where the Supreme Court was arguing not only about something that wasn't necessarily politically divisive in a really obvious way, though I guess we can get into that in a little bit, but something that directly affects tech and tech policy and arguably the future of the internet as we know it. So as far as I understand it, this is tied to the freedom to put information on the internet, but also the freedom to police what's happened on the internet. Is that right? Yes, kind of. <laughs> it's a complex, it's a, it's actually, ironically, it's a very short law. It's a law from 1996. It's part of the Communications Decency Act and it's called Section 230. So Section 230, like a lot of people will argue about it without having ever read it, but it's actually very short and easy to read. But basically, Section 230 is the way that everything from like Yelp to personal blogs to Facebook to Twitter, 
are allowed to host user-generated content without facing legal liability for the content of that content, if that makes sense. Yeah. What's interesting, I mean, that this happened in the mid-90s when the internet was so young, I remember having to moderate, like actively moderate content for a publisher in Norway because they were like, we're responsible for everything. Eventually they passed a law to fix that, right? But this is a really crucial law that even enables, without it, Facebook couldn't exist, right? Yeah, without it, very little of the modern internet, especially the social internet, which is kind of like, you know, my area of expertise, would look the way that it does today. All And basically everything about the internet would look totally different if platforms face legal liability for the stuff that they host, you know, and it's a huge Obviously, it's a huge business model, you know, that things are shaking up a little bit right now. But, you know, ad-supported, user-generated content platforms are kind of what we've used for years and been used to. And so this all kind of boils down to two big cases. How are these potentially impacting how you and me do stuff on the Internet? Yeah. So this week on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Gonzalez versus Google, which is actually really versus YouTube. Obviously, YouTube is part of Google. It was brought by the family of a victim who was killed in a Paris nightclub shooting that was perpetrated by ISIS, the terrorist group. And the family basically argued, the family and the family's lawyer, the petitioner on Tuesday, argued that YouTube should face legal liability for the fact that they promoted, this is what they argued, that they promoted extremist content, Islamic State terrorist content on YouTube that preceded the attack. So they were like, why should you not be liable, YouTube, for hosting this content and even promoting it? if it can lead to these terrible consequences. And it's a little more complicated than that, but that's like the high level. And just to clarify something, when you say the word promoting, I presume that this is like the recommendation engine, that they're not actually, I don't know, running adverts with ISIS content? That is what they argued. So this is what I found interesting about this case, is that they argued that by potentially promoting Islamic State content on YouTube, videos that could serve to further you know, an extremist agenda or further radicalize people, that that act of promotion actually wasn't covered by Section 230. So the argument is that that action, like the, the promotion itself, the ag- algorithmic promotion, servicing content, even being like, click this video next, whatever, that that isn't protected by Section 230 in the same way that a normal post would be, like normal content on the platform would be. Right. And so if I subscribe to Hatmaker TV and I get to your next video, that promotion makes sense. But if I get served a different kind of video, they're arguing that it makes less sense because it's algorithmically promoted. Does that make sense? They're not arguing that it doesn't make sense. They're just saying that, hey, we believe that this is actually like a different kind of activity on a legal level than the kind of thing that Section 230 defines. So Section 230 It actually says that interactive computer services are not liable for any information provided by another information content provider. What that boils down to is they're not liable for user-generated content. But the lawyers in the case on Tuesday were trying to argue that they should be liable for algorithmic recommendations when they result in arguably catastrophic consequences. Though, again, you know, the causality between extremist content being on YouTube and a terrorist event in a nightclub is not necessarily clear, but that's not really what was, you know, appearing in oral arguments on Tuesday. Yeah, and, you know, you could very easily argue, as they're obviously doing, that, you know, user-generated content is one thing, but the recommendation engine, that is actually comes from YouTube. That is their content. Exactly. That's actually pretty much exactly the crux of the argument. You know, they were saying that this this just isn't the same as passively. They used language like passive, you know, an active axolot. They were kind of trying to draw a distinction between just passively hosting a whole bunch of stuff and actually kind of steering and pointing people toward this stuff. Yeah. That's actually really fascinating. Thank you for bringing that to life. It's uh, <laughs> It makes sense to me. That, that's really cool. And then there's a second case, too, that has something to do with Twitter. 
Yeah, I mean, the second case, so there's a lot more with both of these cases. The second case is honestly pretty much just parallel to the first case. But what's interesting in it, it regards a different ISIS state terrorist attack and a different victim, and it's brought by a different victim's family. But the argument is pretty much the same. In, it's kind of diving into a lot of the same issues. And actually, the petitioner, the lawyer, was the same from argument to argument. So we kind of like bridged into Wednesday's oral arguments from Tuesday. But what's interesting is like, you know, you can be like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. And it actually kind of makes sense to me, too, when you describe it like that. Like, you know, we're just publishing content passively versus we're saying, hey, look at this. We're promoting this. But what's interesting is like the conversation on Tuesday was actually pretty unexpected. The justices largely just did not buy the argument at all. You know, they were kind of like, we don't see this distinction. And I mean, it's their job to be like, OK, if we if we change this law and we push it to its most extreme possible conclusions, what kind of consequences will that have? And so what they were what they're saying, basically, is that it would be impossible or at a certain point, you'd have to draw a line. Right. You have to say this is, you know, algorithmic promotion that is fine. And, and this is the kind that would subject you to legal liability, potentially. But they were like basically in an extreme form of the petitioner's argument on Tuesday even things like Google search would be subject to liability. So if you were like, hey, any algorithmic decisions at all that a company makes, they're not protected by Section 230 for that. That could affect very, very, very large swaths of the internet, stuff that isn't even probably what most people would think about when they think about you know, user-generated content and platforms and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to Google, if they can't rely on algorithms, then <laughs> that sounds like a very serious thing. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, like I guess I cover this stuff a lot and I tend to think of algorithms as... You know, stuff that is promoted on websites like Facebook and YouTube, stuff that's sticky, you're serving stuff, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm really into guns, you're serving me more gun content, great, whatever. You know, you're kind of giving users more of what you think they'll want or what you think they'll engage with. But I mean, it's definitely an argument that all of the ways that the web is organized mostly are dependent on algorithms, including stuff like a really basic algorithm. It's like when you're searching, say I'm looking at like, you know, furniture reviews and I want to see the most recent reviews. You know, that's a really basic sorting tool but it is a way that the company is sorting content. So even things, you know, that's how the uh, Google search argument comes into play is that Google search is actually, you know, it is literally ranking search results. We don't look at Google search and say, oh, this is the best. You know, we're just kind of like, oh, this is first, this is second, whatever. We don't think of Google as like handing us these things. But, um, you know, there's definitely an argument that Google is doing the same kind of recommending when it does that as it is on YouTube and saying what video you should click next. Yeah, totally. And as somebody who used to, like I ran a startup for a long time and we used e-commerce and the difference between being in the first spot or third spot on Google, like it has a huge money impact, right? And I think with these types of laws that are being drawn up and potentially now changed, if that's the direction we're going, there's an enormous amount of financial incentive on both sides to make sure that like how these things are actually shifted around. Yeah, I mean, the incentive, I would say, largely from tech companies and tech platforms and, you know, a lot of internet advocates, internet freedom advocates, is just, please do not change anything about Section 230. You know, and people feel like that for actually quite a few different reasons. Obviously, tech companies feel like that because they're like, we have this dialed in. We don't want to be exposed to additional legal liability, even if we can afford it. Small publishers, they might not be able to, say you run a blog and somebody comes on and they, you know, libel somebody in your blog in the comments you know, you might not be able to afford to pay the legal bills associated with even fighting that in court, even if it wasn't particularly legitimate. So that's something the justices were really concerned about. They were basically like, there's going to be a tidal wave of like totally bogus litigation that happens if we mess with this. And we can't really predict what that's going to be or what that looks like. So, I mean, across the board, it was interesting because it was, um you know, justices from both sides of the political spectrum echoing the same sentiment in different ways. They were like, we don't know that the Supreme Court is the right place to decide these matters. We don't feel particularly comfortable with that. And it seems like there's a lot of unforeseen consequences and second order effects that can happen 
if we tinker around with this. Yeah, totally. And there's been some changes as well to 230 already, right? There was FOSTA-SESTA. There was a huge amount of conversation around deplatforming certain political figures in the in the past few years. And all of those things seems to have had unintended consequences as well. Like, is there any sort of sense on whether the worry people have about changes to 230 being, like, is that warranted? Are, are you worried? Well, to be clear, like, a lot of the conversation around 230 that came up, particularly during the Trump administration, became a very, like, hot button political issue. People were like, oh, we're being censored. You know, websites have an anti-conservative bias. If they weren't protected by Section 230, you know, all of this would look different. So people really had a political agenda and all that. But that didn't amount to anything. That didn't change the law. You know, Congress is still talking about it. They can't decide. A lot of people in Congress want to change the law in some way or tinker with it, whether that's good or bad. But it's unlikely that they're going to decide on what that looks like anytime soon, even if they agree on the ultimate goal. But FOSTA and CES are honestly, you know, that's the same thing, but it's wildly controversial. And it's definitely, we're starting to see now, you know, a lot of people are like, well, this carve out, to explain it, it's a carve out for platforms in Section 230. They are they are actually liable for content that could promote like sex trafficking, you know, crimes like that. Some really, really bad stuff. But now we're seeing kind of the effects of this carve out in Section 230. A lot of sex workers say that it makes platforms less safe for them to do what they're going to be doing anyway. You know, we've seen a lot of that and it's not clear how effective it really was at achieving the goal of like reducing sex trafficking and, and these heinous crimes, you know, that Congress set out to to achieve. Yeah, totally. Was there any sort of indication whether whether the Supreme Court was like which way they were leaning or what the actual discussion was doing? Uh, yeah, I would say heavily from both days, the Supreme Court doesn't seem to be leaning toward making any changes. I mean, I w- we're expecting, you know, decisions on these cases, I think, by early summer, by June. And I, I think most people would be really shocked if they were like, actually, yeah, we're going to we're going to mess with 230. We're going to make the decision in in favor of the argument that the petitioner was making on Tuesday and Wednesday. The justices across the board were not only did they not feel suited to make these decisions, but they were very nervous, again, about the unintended consequences of making any changes at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a funny comment that was floating around where one of the judges said, like, well, we're not the biggest experts on the internet, which made me giggle. And it's true, right? It's it's like something that everybody feels like they have some sort of a connection with. But this touches a lot of people's lives in perhaps unpredictable ways. Yeah, that was a funny comment. And it was actually kind of surprising. That was like sort of early in the day on Tuesday. And everyone was like, you know, lol, <laughs> the Supreme Court, you know, they don't know, like, I think there's like a stories about the Supreme Court members didn't even use email until like it had been around for like, you know, ages and ages. It's not a particularly tech savvy group of people. But actually, the arguments on Tuesday and Wednesday were pretty philosophical in nature. And I would say, if anything, you know, the lawyer arguing the situation kind of got like a little mixed up on some of the platform details. But some of that stuff didn't matter as much. It didn't matter as much how tech fluent they were and like the, you know, the nitty gritty of all of this stuff when they were like kind of talking about the spirit of the thing. And again, what what would happen if these changes were taken to kind of logical extremes? Yeah, I love it. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. It was a delight to talk to you as ever. Yep. Thank you for having me. Next, I talked to our crypto reporter and chain reaction host, Jackie Melanek, about Coinbase's surprisingly positive quarter four results. Hello, Jackie. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Ah, it's always fun to talk to you. So uh, <laughs> you cranked out a story about Coinbase this week and mm-hmm. its quarter four results. Uh, it's been an interesting market in crypto land, but they did pretty well. What's the headline? Yeah, so Coinbase has had a number of headlines this week for their earnings to the launch of their new layer two blockchain. But we're talking about earnings and 
basically a lot of people were not expecting them to really perform well for Q4 of 2022, which they just reported. And it was a happy surprise for shareholders and market players alike. Coinbase beat Wall Street's expected revenue, which was $581.2 million. And they actually were about 4% higher at $605 million, which is a good look for them given the current market turmoil, kind of like what you brought up in crypto land right now. And I think what's interesting about this is that a lot of exchanges are struggling with trading volume being down because of the bear market. Less people are diving in because there's less hype, whatever interpretation you may have. Coinbase, obviously, as one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, has to deal with that. And a lot of their revenue in the past came from this trading model. So they kind of had to go down like alternative paths to create revenue. And it worked out in their favor. I mean, they had this subscription and services model, and it accounted for almost like half of their revenue in Q4. Yeah, totally. Well, and, you know, it, it's got to be hard times to be a, a crypto exchange. There's that other crypto exchange that we keep writing about a fair amount. <laughs> and I'm curious, right? Yes. So obviously people, all eyes on crypto exchanges and FTX collapsing and all the crap that happened around that. But at the same time, was that an opportunity for Coinbase, you think? Yeah, definitely. And I think the overall crypto ecosystem and exchanges, especially these centralized entities that didn't have to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcies, like what we saw with that three-letter exchange you brought up, FTX or Voyager or Celsius, all these other crypto entities. I mean, the list can go on, unfortunately. The ones who did survive 2022 are trying to rebuild and move on from a chaotic year that was filled with like industry-changing events that did kind of shake the whole space. Yeah, totally. And so what did it do to do so well? You mentioned that volumes were kind of down, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's kind of hodling as hard as they possibly can. Like, how can they still make money? Yeah, so Coinbase basically looked into alternative revenue sources to help bump themselves up because obviously their traditional model of generating revenue through trading volumes wasn't going to happen given like everything we just talked about, the market not looking too hot. So about 47% of the company's revenue came from that quote unquote subscription and services, which is about like $282 million. And it basically underwent like a massive revenue makeup change with a focus shifting from trading revenue to subscription services, which is like Coinbase's one product, which allows you to waive commission fees for traders. And it has some other perks that I don't know because I'm not a member. Um, but it's kind of like a Netflix subscription for traders is how I look at it. You know, you get perks by paying this monthly fee and it honestly has served them well. That's really interesting to me because obviously you just mentioned that all these exchanges largely make money from, mm -hmm. you know, taking a cut or taking <laughs> a, a fee. Per so if you say, hey, if you subscribe, you don't have to do that. That seems like a yeah. I don't know. Like, it seems I almost hope like they did the math counter, there. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem kind of silly, but in a way, I think larger institutions and other players are using that as a reason to get more into the space, opposed to like the one-off person who might like invest in crypto. It's probably for the bigger players. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, I don't know, maybe cautiously, it seems like people are getting a little bit optimistic about uh, crypto again. You know, Bitcoin has bounced back up. A lot of the other currencies are like, doing all right. Like, I didn't really see that coming, to be honest. It seems like every other story we have right now is layoffs and things going horribly wrong. And then cryptos, they're going, hey, guys, we're still here doing our thing. Yeah, it's honestly surprising. 
a lot of people were surprised by it. And some people are referring it to as like maybe a quote unquote bear trap, which basically means like when the market goes up, everyone's like so excited about it. And then it just plummets back down and everyone's like crying again. But I think a lot of what's driving it is just like new innovation and products in the space. And typically like Bitcoin in the recent months has been tied to traditional equities and stocks. So you are right in that fact that everyone else seems to be down, but then crypto is suddenly doing something well. So it'll be like a time will tell situation if this like actually becomes a bull market or if it will be that bear trap that I mentioned before. And of course, this is not financial advice. This is just what we've observed. <laughs> right. So what I'm hearing is bye, bye, bye. Yeah, I don't know. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> apropos that, I mean, I, I wrote about crypto last week, which mm-hmm. I never do. But basically, Coinbase massively saved my butt when mm-hmm. they had like this. If you're like me, you don't really know how it works. And you send the wrong currency to the wrong address. Like for several years, that money was just gone. But they Mm -hmm. delivered a little feature that's actually helped me recover my money. And I think just little things like that, they're clearly investing in stuff to really try and make this more palatable for, you know, retail investors. Yeah. And that's a super interesting tool that they launched because it's basically like if I sent something that Coinbase doesn't have on their exchange to the exchange, like you said, it'll sit in this like made up little void. I don't know where this is in the world, but it's like the lost graveyard of tokens is how I look at it. And for so long, you were unable to access these things until now when they're like, hey, we didn't touch this. It's just been sitting there because we don't want to receive it. But now you could go and show that you sent it. You wanted to receive it, but we could send it back out for you so you could have it on another platform or wallet or whatever place you want to receive it. So I think, you know, Coinbase is kind of like diving into different areas to make themselves a bit more accessible and help retail investors. Uh, We also saw that Coinbase launched Base on Thursday, which is an Ethereum-focused layer two blockchain. So staying with me on this, basically it's a scaling solution for Ethereum. It's to make sure things could go faster, more efficient without like clogging up the Ethereum network. And this is kind of huge because like a centralized entity like Coinbase that has so many ties in the legal world, you know, like their CEO, Brian Armstrong, is always in D.C., like trying to lobby and all these things is now like getting into the decentralized space. And I think it kind of points to Coinbase's as a whole believing in the crypto ecosystem, not just like the centralized world that like banks get involved with, but also things that are not in their quote unquote handbook. And it's switching up the script for the company as it moves into like a decentralized world. Yeah, totally. And that goes both ways, right? They're not just a passive company doing passive things. Like a while Mm -hmm. ago, it's quite a while ago now, I think, they bought that anti-tumbling research company that helps the government and the police figure out like what oh. happens to to Bitcoin and things like that that have been sent around. Right. And everybody was like, wait a minute. So they're not just the good guys? <laughs> but on the other hand, I feel like that really helps. Like you can say what you will about Bitcoin and how untraceable it is, but it does seem to help the amount of trust you get from the retail investors, right? Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, Coinbase is just trying to position itself in such a place. And, you know, its earnings is now showing off that their strategy is working. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, their earnings do show that positive like quarter over quarter increase, but it is still down tremendously from the year prior. But that is with to say like the whole industry is down. So I'll give them a little bit of credit there. Um, Well, in the year prior, right, that was when everybody was like, oh, Bitcoin is at 60 grand. It's going to go to the moon. Yeah. And so, you know, it went to a moon crater instead. But (laughs) for now. (laughs) Yeah, for now. And it'll bounce back. But this is the interesting thing to me about. Yeah, sure. 
But this is the interesting thing to me about inherently volatile asset classes, right? Mm -hmm. They are they're volatile, which which sucks if you're used to banks, but it's great if you actually know what you're doing in mm -hmm. and what risk management looks like in a volatile asset class. Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely for uh, risk on people. The space has always been volatile. And I think that is part of the beauty of it is you never know what's going to happen. And even when you think you do, you don't. So, <laughs> right. So you mentioned it was it was down. Did you get a sense from the wider market how people received the earnings? Like, is something about to happen or... You know, what's what's new and exciting in crypto land? Well, yeah, I think people were pretty surprised that Coinbase, you know, was above the Wall Street estimates. And I think on Thursday when they announced their new blockchain, that came as a shock to many because prior to that, they weren't in the decentralized space. You know, they're a centralized entity. So it'll be interesting to see that kind of progression going forward. And I think the community as a whole, I wrote a story on this, is basically excited about it. Like not to like shill their bag or anything, but people are genuinely welcoming Coinbase with open arms to the decentralized areas. And it's going to be interesting to see like how they contribute to scaling Ethereum and all these other like blockchains possibly in the future to kind of make things more accessible for the native crypto audience. And then also like the everyday person who just happens to download Coinbase and, you know, buys it just to check it out. Like, I think it'll create that bridge for new people to get into like the crazy, wacky worlds of crypto. Yeah. Well, and I think it's an interesting strategy from them choosing mm -hmm. to kind of position themselves in this place where they're like, hey, we're not just a bank or a place where you can sell and buy. We're actually buying into the entire ecosystem and contributing to it. That's not something that happened by accident, right? There was an active choice. And in the process, I think they're doing some interesting stuff. As much as I'm not a fan of crypto, I love seeing <laughs> interesting companies doing technologically interesting things in fun spaces. And they seem mm -hmm. to be one of those companies. Yeah, I think taking risks is always an interesting thing to watch, especially with massive companies like theirs. I mean, them trying to create this alternative revenue model definitely paid off for that quarter. We'll see if it does in the future or if this was like a one-off thing. But going off of what you said, it'll be interesting to see if Coinbase's diversification continues to serve them in a positive manner or if like these alternative revenue streams and project launches and things like that only have so much ammo inside. Well, and that's the thing, right? Focus is like the name of the game for most early stage companies. And I mm -hmm. think what we're seeing here is that they're maturing. They're growing up into a more like they're no longer early stage company. And so yeah. they can they can afford a little bit of like focus creep or a, a broadening of the focus. Yeah, definitely. And it's like they're no longer just an exchange. They're trying to be more than that, even though they are known as like the second largest crypto exchange by trading volume. There's going to be this opportunity for them to try and be something bigger than that. And we, we've seen this before with other big tech companies. Like when you think of Microsoft or Google, like we know them for what they are as their major product, but they also have so many side products that dive into so many different sectors. And I feel like Coinbase is trying to do that in the crypto world. Yeah, totally. Hey, Jackie, an absolute delight to have you on the show. And I hope we speak again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode. And thanks for joining us. You can read all of the stories we talked about at TechCrunch.com. Also, I'm going to TechCrunch Early Stage on April 20th in Boston. Join me and save yourself some money by using the code TCPOD for a 40% discount on founder and investor passes. As always, check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week on the same pod time on the same pod channel.
The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.